The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. Welcome to another episode of Create Your Shot. I am Tyler Loria, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host up in Philadelphia, Chris Smalls Angelos. And Smalls, this week we established that I'm the worst podcast host in the history of sports podcasts. And I think that's a little harsh. Uh, listen, we're not, we're both, and, and me definitely included, we're not stud journalism guys. We're not hardcore, hardcore Jays. But I'll tell you right now what we are. You know, we're good at looking at Wikipedia. We're good at doing a little research. And then we're good at finding the answers. I think we do a good job of letting people tell their own story. And that's what this podcast is all about. Right. So this week, Antone Gray, assistant at Brown University, formerly of Maine, played at Rhode Island College. Really fun interview. Uh, I called him Anton right away off the jump. I, I, you know, I think it was a little bit of a regional, you know, draw a little, little different dialect yeah. down here in Nashville, Tennessee. You Northeast guys. Well, this kinda... is this is where you're authentic. You know what I mean? You've, you're a truly an authentic Southerman now, which is great. An authentic Southerman? What is, Southern what is that? Is that that's Southern gentleman? So obviously, as you guys know, the BovadaSportsbook.com line on how many times Smalls and I say stupid things, it's just astronomical. It's like, it's probably like 58 per episode. But I don't want to take away from the fact that Anton was an awesome, awesome interview. I, I mean, just a, a guy that talks a lot about kind of his life and, and figuring out what his kind of purpose was that, you know, he made some mistakes when he was younger, didn't necessarily want to go D3. And just has, you know, I, I texted Tom Barrett actually set this up. They, they worked together at Maine and, and he said, you know, he'd be a really good guest for the show. And I was so impressed with Antone's self-confidence. Like I was just so impressed with as, as a 29 year old who has been a division one assistant now for five years. I was just really impressed with how calm and like poised he was and how, you know, we talked about reflection. We talked about self-evaluation. And that, to me, I thought was really, really impressive for a guy that, you know, it's not, not going to be a surprise for everybody to hear that I, I don't know that I had ever spoken to him before we hopped on the, the podcast on Mother's Day Sunday. No, for sure. And I think the cool thing, you know, for young guys and young coaches, you know, we all make mistakes when we're younger. And, you know, some it's academically, some it was playing or something they did as young coaches. It's about kind of what you do and what you use with those mistakes to move forward. And I think Anton's done a really good job of, you know, creating his own path and also utilizing those mistakes to connect with players and uh, be able to be that voice in the coaching staff as well, which was really cool to hear. And I think um, it is impressive being a division one coach for all the years he has. And he's, you know, just about my age, 29 years old. and really making his way up and it was great to speak with him. Yeah. And I enjoyed hearing a little bit too, you know, they, they, we talked about this at Maine, he was there for four years and then they turned the staff over and this was his first year at Brown. So they won 20 games, which I think was, I, I think he mentioned that was the most wins Brown has ever had in the season, but also, you know, the most wins that he had had as a coach, his teams at Rhode Island college were awesome. Uh, played under mm-hmm. Bob Walsh and coached with Bob Walsh, but Teams at Rick were awesome, but you know, at the Division One level, when you finally start to really get it rolling, it's it's definitely a different thing. And I appreciated him kind of speaking to that a little bit because people kind of gloss over like what losing does to you in this profession and, and how hard it makes your job because there's just more and more pressure. And 
you may be a great coach and there's resource issues. There's, you know, the administration has problems. You know, maybe you just have some kids that don't fit. Like the culture's not good enough. But people just always say like, yeah, we're trying to get better. We're trying to get better. But I mean, Smalls, you and I both know, like winning is the ultimate thing that makes you feel like you're doing a good job. No matter if you are, you're just getting lucky or not. Like when you win, you feel like what you're doing really, really matters. And I think it's harder to do that when you're losing, even if you still do feel like, man, I'm doing as much as I can. It's hard to not second guess yourself. And I thought that coming up in the podcast was really interesting because we haven't really talked about how losing affects you a ton. We've talked about learning how to lose, but not like, hey, you know, you went through four years where you, you bit and clawed and scratched to make sure that you had a chance to win every game. And now this year you win 20 games and go to the CBI. Like, that's pretty freaking cool. It, it really is. And that's a great point that you just made. I think, you know, when we're losing as coaches or when we're going through that, it's hard to pinpoint you know, what validates what works and what you're doing correctly off the court, on the court and things like that. But when you win, you know, you feel like everything's going the right way. And I think him being able to draw on experiences of losing coming from players when he won and even high school where, he, you know, coached for one year and won a state championship. Going through a struggle of losing has probably propelled him to this point to really appreciate when they, you know, hit those goals of 20 wins and winning the CBI and everything like that. So you can control back on those experiences. And I think that's what's going to make Anselm really successful in his future career, for sure. I should say we're taping this on a Sunday evening, Sunday afternoon, really. Smalls wants to tape before the uh, 76ers game seven. So they are dogs on Bovada. I believe they are six, four point, right? six point dogs. Wow. I thought it was dogs. six. I mean, it's, it, you know, I don't know how they're going to do. Smalls, I, you're, you're feeling good. Game five was brutal. Game six was much better. Game seven, maybe Embiid's got a little sinusitis. I'm not sure. Here, Mother's Day-itis. I'm not, you know, whatever. Here's what I did when I woke up this morning. Of course, we had this podcast, so I, I knew I had to prep for that. And then, you know, that took all of, uh, you know, checking out a profile at Brown University and, you know, Look that up, put a little Google search bar, Anton Gray, Brown University, checked my prep. I was like, okay, I'm ready. Then I immediately went to Bovada and I said, oh, the Phillies are playing today. Oh, they're at two o'clock. That sounds like a good day. I put a little money on the Phillies to win outright. No problem. They took care of business, Cole Irvin opening day. And then, you know what I did? I'm a little crazy. I said, outright Sixers, Bovada, hand me back all my money. Let me get rich. Let me be happy and let Monday be great. But we'll see. But right now, you know, Bovada's got all my money. There's nothing in my bank account. It's all pushed towards the Sixers tonight. So a lot on the line. Let's talk about a lot on the line for the Sixers real quick before we get to uh, Antone. I I do... There's been rumors that Brett Brown's going to get fired if they lose today. And it's interesting that we're taping. And by the time this airs on Tuesday, we'll, we'll likely know, like, is Brett Brown the coach? Are the Sixers in the conference finals? Whatever. And I think this is a good time to talk about how a guy like Brett Brown deserves a whole lot better than what happens to him in, like, one random game. And I understand, like, people might say, like, well, he doesn't adjust well. His lineups weren't great, whatever. I mean, they basically, you know, you get paid a lot of money to get thrown in these situations where they just throw a bunch of players on your team together at the end of the season. You have to try to figure it out. And your results ultimately are what you're judged on. But it, it feels like Smalls that we're selling Brett Brown a little bit short here. And I, I like the guy. I really do. You know, I, I don't know him well at all, but I met him when I was working with the 87ers a couple different times. And I feel like he has gone through so much. And for the team to get to this type of game seven on the road against Kawhi Leonard and the Raptors, like just because they lose today doesn't really validate or invalidate anything that he's done over the last like 
you know, five years. And I think it would be a real shame if the Sixers ownership is that toxic and is like, we're not going to let this group work with Brett. I, I do feel that way. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think Brett Brown's done a great job and, you know, people, um, and maybe it's every city, but I just know growing up in Philadelphia, it tends to be like hyper pressure, hyper critical about every little detail, even if they don't know what they're talking about. And that's okay. I get that. That comes with the job. But at the same point, I think Brett Brown's done a very, very good job. Like you mentioned, taking a lot of pieces that are really new. People act like, oh, yeah, they're, they're not that new. Well, they all got together late in the year here. I, I think today <laughs> will be the 20th game that they've started all of like Embiid, Simmons, Butler, Tobias Harris, and J.J. Reddick just because of Embiid's injuries. I think this is the 20th yeah. start they'll all have together. And, the, and they just, yeah, it's that, that's one thing. That's one element. And then the adjustments thing always bothers me when people are like, oh, he made adjustments. Oh, he didn't make this adjustment. Well, what do you think the other team's doing? You think the other team's just gone, hmm, we lost that other game. Let's just roll out and do the same thing. Teams make adjustments too, and then you counter adjust. And, you know, one team's got to win, and the Raptors aren't. It's not like they're the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference. They're the higher yeah. seed. That people act like this is like some crazy thing. It's a battle. It's exactly what they you now get into a game seven on the road. That's really difficult. But this is a great chance. Uh, hopefully they win. But I don't think Brett Brown's validation is done in one game seven in the second that, round. That's the other thing, too. Like they're not supposed to win this series. Like I understand, like it, it's not a thing of like, hey, you're definitely admitting that you're losing but like they're, they're a betting favorite on Bovada and Vegas whatever you want like yeah. so so when you lose in game seven and you basically yes they got blown out in game five and it was really bad and like yes they've looked bad in some other situations but you're exactly right Smalls like to go to game seven with this team that's I mean they won what 58 games 57 games this year like they were better than the Sixers all year yeah. and it's like all of a sudden and, and this is where coaching is tough and it's like you want the lights to be bright and you want to make a ton of money but then at the end of the day like if you're Brett Brown you kind of have to be okay with this and it's like, I don't really know what to tell you, you know, like it just is, it's, it's, it's a weird, it's this kind of like yeah. weird paradox where like, if you're good, great. And if you're, you coach to expectation, that's not good enough. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and I'm not going to go down this road too long because I think it would take way too much of our time. It would be like going around circles, but the other element is, you know, people are like, oh, we have the best players. And it's like, guys, Ben Simmons is in his second year of playing NBA basketball. Joel Embiid's in his third year. He gets hurt a lot. He's got illnesses and everyone deals with these kind of things on both sides. So I'm not just saying that for Brett, but there's a lot of stuff that people aren't appreciating about Brett Brown's job as a coach that he's done, that you, you want to get rid of him. The grass isn't always greener. Who would you like to bring in and just, boom, flip the switch? They're going to win 60, and they're going to be in the NBA Finals next year. It's not, it's not that easy. And I think as Sixers fans and as people will realize, that switch doesn't get easily flipped, and it's probably because we haven't been around winning for a while. For a long yes. time. That's yeah. ex that's exactly right. I mean, 18 years ago, when the Raptors and the Sixers had a Game 7, yeah. the Phillies had a uh, bobblehead giveaway that was Pat Burrell. Like, that's how long it's been <laughs> since there's been a game like this. And, you know, yeah. I, I just say, again, like, we're doing this little quick post-mortem on Brett Brown. Yeah. I, I don't think that Brett Brown's going to get fired. I, we just rumored that. I did hear a rumor that if they did fire Brett Brown, they were, gonna they were very interested in, co in interviewing Tyron Lue, which seems, you know, I don't know. Let's hire a guy that's only worked with LeBron, but... 
It's like, I don't know, that, that stuff is very odd to me, but we will not continue. Again, we did this interview Sunday because if the Sixers lose today, Smalls is going to be incapacitated all day on Monday. So, But for everybody that listens, if you like what you hear, please do rate us five stars. Uh, leave a review on iTunes. If you do that, send us a screenshot and I will send you a koozie. Everyone else who's been on the show uh, from a coaching standpoint, look out for koozies. They, they are in the mail, so they should be coming your way if you, are, if you deserve them. And uh, reach out to us. We are Create Your Shot on Twitter, at Create Your Shot on, podca- on Instagram, at Create Your Shot Pod on Instagram. There we go. Create Your Shot on Facebook and Create Your Shot at gmail.com. So like I said, reach out to us. We've, we've uh, had some real good guests coming up. People have suggested a lot of people. If you want to be on the show, hit us up. If you have some suggestions, you know, send us some emails. We, we are happy to act on those. And enjoy this interview with Antone Gray, the assistant men's basketball coach at Brown University. And thank you, as always, for listening. men's basketball coach at Brown University. It is Mother's Day, so I appreciate Smalls and Anton getting on early on this Sunday morning and making sure their moms know they're not priorities. But uh, Anton, how are you, man? How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And really, it's Anton, just so you guys can get that. So, uh, Yeah, it was bad, bad journalism. That was really bad, really bad. You know, I kind of, th- you know, I'm a Southern guy now, so I, I, maybe I'll just chalk it up to slang, you know? Like, and nobody will think that we're idiots. What do you think about that? I hear that. I hear Anton. I get I get Antoine. So I'm really not too worried about it. All right, hold on. Let me redo it. Anton Gray, assistant men's basketball coach at Brown University. So now we got your name right. You're doing all right this morning. You guys are coming off a 20 and 12 season, seven and seven in the Ivy, a CB and the Ivy and a CBI appearance. This was your first season. What was it like for you uh, transitioning from Maine over to Brown? Uh, it was a great year, really valuable experience. Uh, obviously, um, my most accomplished season in my career and uh, just really working with some sharp guys that really know the game. It was uh, it was an awesome year, being home. And uh, like you said, winning 20 games, most in school history, first postseason win in school history, just all that, just the atmosphere and just being around the program, uh, you know, where you're, you're in some meaningful games, you know, it definitely meant a lot. Did you feel like when you got there this year, you joined a staff? I know Tyler Sims now has moved on, but TJ Sorrentine's been associate head coach for a while. Mike Martin, I think, is in his fourth or fifth year. When you got there, the staff was like pretty well established. Did you feel like this team had a chance to be as good as they were from this day you stepped foot on campus? Yeah, when I got there, like the, those guys were uh, really high on the team that they had in place and uh, had a lot of veterans and uh, some really good young guys that were talented. So coming into the staff, like they they spoke highly every single day of the group. So and I can kind of see it, the guys approaching, you know, starting with the older guys, the way they approached it. And then just the younger guys followed. So it was definitely something that you can feel every single day being around the program. Yeah. And you're a Rhode Island man through and through. And we'll get more into your playing career and, you know, how you're coming from. But what was it like for you to come back home? And to get an opportunity to be at an institution like Brown, did that mean a lot to you, um, getting a chance to be an assistant at Brown University? Yeah, definitely. It's funny. Uh, I went to 
school, the middle school across the street. So I went to Moses Brown School from fifth to eighth grade. And uh, so it, it came full circle. And, uh, you know, I never, ever thought that I'd be working at Brown University, you know, growing up in Providence. I'd drive by it every single day and I had no idea, you know, just the type of place that it is. It's such a superior place. And, you know, it, it was awesome to get the call from Mike and to come home and, you know, it was a dream come true. Yeah, and Tyler kind of mentioned it earlier, you know, you join a staff that, you know, has been together and they all know each other. And of course, there's always turnover within college basketball staffs, but you you join this staff and they've been together. How did you kind of carve out your role initially and then assimilate yourself into the staff where you're contributing and you're really being yourself? Well, a couple of things. The staff, uh, so I've known TJ since I was about 10 years old. Um, Played for his dad in high school, and him and my uncle, uh, and also Mike Martin, the head coach, played AAU together since they were about fourteen. Um, for Mike Stevens, who actually refed the national championship game, so they—that's uh, a little connection that we have. And so I've always known those guys um, for a while. So that was kind of easy. Tyler Sims welcomed me with open arms, built a relationship with him on the road, and then our ops guy Brendan Smith—I've met him a few times just being local and just stopping in, but so just carving, you know, carving out my role wasn't, uh, wasn't as hard as I thought it would be, you know, just kind of knowing those guys already. And I started with the players, you know, I'm such a players coach. So that's where I started and I uh, just invested my time into those guys. And, you know, it helped, you know, everything else fall into place. Uh, going off that, I mean, there's a, there's a change from coming from Maine and, you know, different schools to Ivy league institutions in regards to scholarships. Of course, there's, academic aid and, you know, different things that Ivy League schools do. What was that, I guess, transition like for you coming from Maine, where you guys are Division One program, you're essentially offering scholarships. How did that change your role in recruiting and your strategy at all? Well, right away, I had to hit the ground running and kind of scan the country. So, um, you know, at Maine, there was more of a, a region, you know, more of the Northeast doing a lot of that recruiting and, you know, a lot of JUCO. So, um, right away, though, just scanning the country and, and then, you know, finding guys that fit the Ivy League, obviously, academically, but also, you know, we were the 10th best league in the country this year. So finding mid-major talent with grades is, isn't is an easy thing to do. Um, so I think that was the biggest difference. And, you know, being away from home for the first time at Maine was was a shell shock for me. So um, being a city guy, going up to Bangor and Orono, uh, wasn't wasn't uh just an easy an easy trek for me but um you know I would say you know coming into the Ivy League you know the difference the biggest difference for me was the recruiting um and then playing back-to-back uh games you know on the weekend so there wasn't a, a major turnaround for scouting and things like that and uh so those those were the two biggest things for me did you feel prepared to like, I've always heard this from people that work at Ivy league schools is like, yes, it's hard to recruit. You don't have scholarships, but at the same time, and at most schools you can recruit nationally because the Ivy league is so prestigious. So you come from a school like Maine in the America East where, you know, for lack of a better word, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's very hard to get kids up there. You don't have a ton of kids in state at Brown. Did you feel like you just had more resources, even though you didn't have scholarships to offer? Did you feel like it was easier or it was just different? Uh, I'd say it was different. And for me, I wouldn't say it was easier at all. I think that was a challenge for me, just kind of, you know, turning names over. Um, 
you know, that was the biggest thing. I think at Maine, it was, you know, 92% of the students get accepted um, that apply. So, you know, turning names over was pretty, was pretty easy there. So I think at, at Brown, that was the challenge. And uh, just getting to know more people, you know, that, that have those mid-major type players. You know, everyone's got a Division One kid, maybe a low-major kid or whatever the case may be, maybe a borderline Division Two kid that can play in the America East. But, you know, at Brown, you had to find those kids. You know, you're competing against Providence and, and Rhode Island as well. So it was finding a mid-major talent. And I, I wouldn't say I was ready right off the bat, but, you know, those guys really helped me you know, find a way to be prepared, you know, as soon as possible. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting, especially your career, because you play at Rhode Island College, you played for Bob Walsh, and then you end up working for Bob uh, for four years at Maine. And, you know, for people who listen to our podcast, my guess is they do know Coach Walsh decently well. He does the dynamic leadership st- ship stuff. He's super accurate, or super active in uh, hoop group. He, he's always at the Final Four. I'm curious, what was it like playing for him and then going to work for him as a coach? Because I, I have to imagine you're held to a very high standard in both positions, but how did the dynamic change for you? Uh, well, playing for him, I, I always say that was the best decision I've ever made. I was trying to go JUCO and, and to go prep school, and I didn't want to, you know, kind of swallow my pride early and go Division three, which a lot of kids don't like to do. But he sold me on that, and, you know, he had a vision for me. And, and I'd say – you know, playing for him was tough. I was his point guard for four years, started for him right away. And, uh, you know, we built a really good relationship through, you know, our bumps and you know, our triumphs that we've been through. So, but coaching with him was very different. You know, I got to see the way, you know, he thought the game every day, the way he talked it. And the biggest thing was the way he lived, you know, how he carried himself and things like that. So uh, th- those were the, the biggest differences was playing for him was just, you know, it was more or less on the floor. Um, at the Division three level, you really don't get as much time to kind of build with your coach as much as possible. But so it was more on the floor. And uh, when I got to Maine, it was it was a lot of stuff that opened my eyes off the floor about him that that I really enjoyed. So um, he's a tough, tough love type guy, you know, always allows you to make mistakes and respond from those mistakes. He uh, coaches you hard on the defensive end and gives you a ton of freedom offensively. So I really feel like, you know, that's been my coaching style. And, you know, a lot of it is obviously because of him. Yeah, I mean, you were a really good player for them and on a, on four teams that were very good. I, I want to say you uh, you won three Little East championships or four Little East championships and three NCAA tournaments. It's one of the two, but 400. Yeah, four NCAAs, three Little East championships in a very good Division three conference. 420 assists in your career, which is third all time there. Did you know right after college that you wanted to coach or did you think like, hey, I, I might have a chance to play professionally given how good this league is? Uh, I mean, where was your thought process, you know, going into your junior and senior year at Rick? Uh, well, I was, you know, I really wanted to go overseas and, uh, you know, I slacked academically. I missed 20 games. Uh, I got suspended academically ineligible my junior year and my senior year. So that kind of put me behind the eight ball and I, uh, I needed about two years to graduate. So just me being a first generation graduate, that was the biggest thing for me. That was bigger than basketball was getting my degree, um, you know, and kind of setting the tone for my family. So uh, right away when, when I got done playing, I just knew if I didn't, if I went overseas, I would not want to come back and go back to school. So uh, I attacked that right away and, you know, doing that allowed me to spend more time with coach Walsh, allowed me to be around the program more and, 
he kind of talked me into it. I could see it when I was sitting out that I really enjoyed coaching. And uh, that's kind of how the, the places, you know, everything fell into place. That's, that's super interesting. So do you now as a coach, are you able to kind of relate to more players as they go through academic struggles and things like that? Just being able to draw on your experience where you had trouble and really relate and push those people? Yeah, absolutely. And, and being, you know, it was really with really good kids at Maine and then really good kids at Brown. And, uh, you know, it's almost funny, like they're, the situations that they're in uh, probably don't compare to the situations that I were in, you know, at, at the level that I was at. So it's, uh, they're, they're in a lot easier situations, but they do, you know, they do worry. And like you said, me being able to relate on that side can help them out. So yeah, I really feel like I built a good relationship with kids, especially, you know, academically, just being able to talk to them about my experiences and the struggles that they'll go through. And, you know, having someone up front and early, you know, I think is gives the kids a better sense of what, what to expect. What was the toughest challenge for you when you first started out as a coach? Just, you know, some guys struggle and we've talked about it if you go right into an assistant job or something like that, you've got a scouting's really hard or breaking down film and running plays, but some guys just struggle with, you know, recruiting and figuring that out. What do you think your biggest challenge was and how did you attack that challenge to ultimately improve? Uh, my two biggest things is and when I got the first job, I was 25 years old, you know, uh, you know, about three months into being 25. So my first challenge was relating to relating to the kids. You know, I, I was a senior who was 22 who, you know, I, I have friends that are 22 years old at that time. So I think that was, you know, finding my, my balance of being the coach and their friend. And then on the court scouting was different for me. Uh, you know, going, walking through sets, you know, for, for the scout, that was tough for me. Um, you know, listening to myself talk and having a paper on the floor and, you know, sometimes I'd screw up and, you know, those players see it. So, and that, that was the biggest thing for me, uh, I'd say was relationship, you know, finding the difference in relationships, my balance in there and then on court scouting. Did you feel like that would be easier for you on the court, uh, given your background as a point guard? Because, I mean, we've talked to a lot of guys who play point guard in college and some that are playing pro now and some that are coaches and, they talk about, you know, that transition. Some say it's hard. Some say it's easy. Did you feel like, given your playing background, that it sh- that you thought it was harder than it should have been? Absolutely. I thought it would just translate right away. You know, I've got to know five positions on the floor. So I thought it would be really easy. But, you know, now that I think about it, it's five positions that, you know, I've been through. I've been through those sets a hundred times in practice. So more or less on the scouting side, you watch five games, six games, whatever it is. You spend two weeks on it, you know, where – you know, in, in your program, you're spending six months on it. So I definitely thought it would be a lot easier. How did you get better as, a, as an X's and O's guy? Like, I, you know, I've actually had this conversation with Coach Walsh before, but this was probably five, six years ago, about how watching film is one of the most important things you can do as a coach. And sometimes it gets lost in translation, especially as the season ends, because there's just so much going on. But, but how did you get better as a, as a scout and as like an evaluator and things like that? Two two people, and you guys, you know, Zach Beauvais really well, who's at Army. He, yep. I lived with Zach for two years uh, up at Maine. So when, you know, when I struggled a little bit, I'd always have him to lean on. And, you know, him and Coach Walsh would always say, you know, you got to study. You know what I mean? Like, go in your room and, and, and go through the five plays, you know, that you're going through. 
don't feel like you need that paper to be your crutch. Um, that was my biggest thing was having the paper on the floor and then going back to look at it. And that would distract me a little bit. So once I got, I, I dialed in and focused a little bit and studied more, um, that helped. And then, you know, another thing is just watching an hour of film a day, whether it's, whether it's highlights, uh, whether it's recruit film, whether it's synergy stuff, you know, just dive into an hour of film or more a day. And I think that, you know, will increase your knowledge and, and help you on the floor. Yeah, you mentioned Zach Bovere. And, uh, you know, of course, whenever we're starting out as young coaches, uh, we kind of look to people with guidance. Who do you feel like you've drawn from the most in your career? And then going off that question, I know I'm not supposed to ask two-parters, but how did you network and develop relationships within the coaching industry to kind of, you know, expand your Rolodex, so to speak? Uh, well, your first question, your first part, those uh, Coach Walsh has been my biggest mentor, obviously. It's been, you know, uh, since day one, since I was 18 years old, he's been my biggest mentor. And uh, secondly, Zach Bovet, living with him, seeing how hard he grinds and, you know, what it takes to be successful at this level, um, that he's definitely been huge to me. And I'd say the third guy, was Matt O'Brien, who's also been on that staff. He was at Vermont, um, was at Rhode Island College, coached me my freshman year, was at Vermont, then came to Maine with us. So he's another guy that's been really big in my career, just kind of off the floor, um, just how he carries stuff and things like that. So I say those three guys up at Maine have really helped shape me. And then uh, your second part too, uh, expand my relationships and things like that. At Maine, we had something called a Who List Friday, and we would – we would reach out to people every Friday, share content, um, send emails, things like that. So, and that would be that would be a way that I would expand my networks, um, and also just on the road, just talking to many as people as I can. You know, bumping into guys, sharing cards, uh, you know, texting guys after, sending notes, things like that um, has really you know really grown in my career. That, that's super cool about the the Friday thing. I would love to know you know, what kind of came out of that? Was there, you know, what was the most interesting, you know, contact you made and the different content, content that you kind of shared? Uh, well, I'd say the biggest contact uh, has been some high major assistants, um, guys like uh, Andre LaFleur, who was at Providence, who was at UNLV, Butch Pierre, who was at Oklahoma State, at NC State. Um, so those are kind of the biggest names that, that, that come to mind right now. And then head coaches, Ed Cooley, uh, having a good contact with him. Penny Collins, who's at uh, Tennessee State, who was at Illinois State and uh, ETSU as well. So um, those guys working, you know, building relationships with those guys and nothing really crazy. Uh, just kind of seeing seeing articles on, on uh, online, sending those, sharing scouts, um, things like that. Uh, you know, I'm really big into player development, so sharing things like that, videos, uh, different type of drills. So those were kind of some things that I've shared along, uh, along the way. Guys, we've got to take a quick break to talk about Podcast One. It's time to place your bets with RJ Bell's Dream Preview on Podcast One Sportsnet. Get the real scoop from the betting expert himself as he shares the hottest tips during the NBA Finals. Download new episodes of RJ Bell's Dream Preview every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Also, I want to talk to you about my favorite daily fantasy, because America's pastime is back. The smell of the grass, the crack of the bat, and now that sensation of money burning a hole in your pocket. You guys know I'm talking about Yahoo Daily Fantasy. Yahoo DFS contests bring you closer than ever to the game you love. 
Yahoo Daily Fantasy offers single-day and week-long contests so you can pick a new team every day. To get started, go to yahoo.com backslash daily fantasy and find a contest that's right for you. You can try a 50-50 contest where the top 50% of lineups win, or you can try Yahoo's innovative quick match feature where they'll pair you with another player of your skill level. Or play for larger prizes and bigger bragging rights in guaranteed prize pool contests. Yahoo Daily Fantasy also has the lowest management fees across the industry. Don't play on other sites that charge high fees just to play. Yahoo's lower management fees mean more prizes for you, the players, to win. Use the promo code POD25, that's P-O-D-2-5, for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. The sooner you get to playing, the sooner you can get to winning. Go to yahoo.com backslash daily fantasy to start playing today. And now, back to Antone Gray. I want to go back to your time in Maine for a second. When you guys get there, there's a new staff. You get four years to kind of take a go at it at a job that's pretty difficult from a resources perspective. When you first got there, was were your roles pretty defined? Like, did Coach Walsh say, like, okay, this is what this is what you're going to be responsible for. This is what you're going to be responsible for. This is what you're going to be responsible for. Or did you guys have a lot more freedom than you expected for over the first couple of years? Like I said, because it feels like that's the kind of job where it like it just takes all hands and it just, you know, for better or worse, that's just how it rolls. You know, a division one assistant as a young guy, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that there aren't things that, you know, are kind of stacked against you. But did you feel like you had very defined roles right when you got there? On the floor, no. We uh, He never pigeonholed us, which was really, really good. I think for all of us, helped us grow and also helped us make mistakes. And he, uh, off the floor, you know, one guy may have uh, community relations one guy may have training room. So I'd say off the floor, we were defined with our roles. But on the floor, you know, recruiting, we didn't have regions. It was attack it as hard as possible. Get, give me names. And then on the floor, it was everyone's going to work with everyone. I worked with bigs. I worked with guards. I worked with wings. Uh, if you were strong in offense, didn't mean you couldn't talk about defense. So, you know, we were all well-versed in kind of everything and all facets of the program. Did he? Did you guys have to do a lot more off-court stuff? I feel like that's one of the things as you get further along in your career and you aim to try to be head coaches, one of the things that guys tell us is there's tons of really good coaches and tons of really good X's and O's guys and really good recruiters. But the stuff that puts you over the top as a head coach might be like how you communicate with the athletic department, how you do with admissions, you know, how you do with community service. Did you guys have to spend a good amount of time doing, I don't want to say non-basketball stuff because it is always basketball, but like, did you have to spend a lot of time working on other facets of the program off the court? Absolutely, 100%. And I, I think we do it both at Brown now and at Maine. I think we do a good job of it, uh, you know, especially with the social media presence. Um, you know, Coach Walsh, as you guys know, it, it lives on social media. The job, you know, interacting with, with students and with fans. And then also just going community service, getting down, serving hot lunches maybe, uh, you know, going to the Ronald McDonald house. We try to do something about once a month when we're at Maine. And I know at Brown, coach goes every week. He goes to the cafeteria, has uh, has lunch with the students, you know, passes out flyers. So I think, yes, you do have to do a good job of, you know, of relating off the floor to your, your, your fans and then the student base. What do you think as a young guy, you know, you, you've now, this is, you know, this is for better or worse, like you're in it, you know, high school coach, college assistant, now you're in the Ivy League. Like, how have you kind of balanced your your work and your personal life? Because, you know, I know, especially like going to a new staff, both, you know, at Maine, where you guys are trying to change the culture and everything, and now coming to Brown, where you're trying to, you know, slot yourself in and make sure that you can do as much as you can. Guys tend to just work themselves into the ground. How do you kind of balance your your professional and your personal life? 
I always say we're always on, you know, and by that, I mean, you know, more or less your cell phone's always on. You just need wise. So, uh, and I, I think I do a good job of, you know, balancing myself between work and life. And, but I will say this, you know, you're working 8.30 to, you know, sometimes earlier, 8.30 to 6, 8.30 to 7. And I'll find myself at home right off my computer, you know, doing stuff that I was doing in my office. So uh, I think it depends on the day, um, you know, where you get more downtime. But on the weekends, I try to give, you know, give up the work and, and kind of enjoy my life. Because like, and right now I don't have any kids, um, you know, I'm not married right now. So I'm in a relationship and I think, you know, you got to find find time for that as well. So um, I think I do a good job with that. And, you know, I think my girl helps me out, you know, with that balance. That's big time. I, I want to know, you know, all of our goals are usually when you get in this business, you want to be a head coach at, you know, the highest level or certain level, division one, especially. But how do you goal set? you know, in your career right now? I know we're always trying to focus on the present, but are you the type of person who's planning out, you know, five-year plan, 10-year plan, things like of that nature? I've always been a short-term goal guy. Uh, just being, I think that's more realistic than a long-term, you know, at the, at the moment. So like right now, my short-term goal is to be a high major assistant. Um, you know, I'm 29 years old right now. I'll be 30 in a couple of weeks. And I think if you ask me that five years from now, my goal would be the head coach. But, uh, you know, I'm realistic. I think my my shot is I think I've got a better shot to be a high major assistant to be a head coach um, right now. So I've always set my goals in about two to three years in advance. How about in-season goals, like goals for your position group or goals for the for the team? Like, do you... I don't know. I knew guys that wrote things down on note cards at the beginning of the year and then went and re- revisited them in February, March to see like, Hey, how did I do? Do you, do you do things like that? Or is it more like a staff kind of thing together? Like, Hey, this is what we're going to try to do this season. I think a little bit of both, but for me, uh, being, being so huge in player development and, and being, I think, uh, I've always set short-term goals on that end as well, you know, in season. And uh, one player that comes to mind is a kid, Aaron Kalixty, who played for us for four years at, at Maine and out of Oklahoma. You know, I would go to him in practice and say, hey, you got to get three floaters, you know, in this five on five segment, you know, just to give him something to 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 set, um, to have a bar to set. So I'd give him that. I'd say, hey, you got to make two kick out, two kick out threes. Um, so just having short term goals in season hey, you know, this week, you know, we got to attack this two games and we got to attack it this way. Um, I think just giving, especially working with teenagers and giving them goals for long term can distract them, I think, a ton. Giving them short-term goals, keep them focused and uh, in line with what you guys want to accomplish. I just have one last question before we go into segments. Uh, obviously, we talked about your playing career and then going to work for Coach Wallace. You were a high school coach and won a, division, uh, won a state championship your one year there. But this year going to Brown, I'm going to guess that the interview process is always a little bit different based on different coaches. It's kind of like, you know, some guys know and they're like, all right, are you the type of guy for me? You come meet with the staff. Other guys really kind of put you through the ringer. But my my hunch is like this is one of the first like actual interviews you had to have because, you know, your relationship with Coach Walsh, it, it kind of is what it is. He was probably very confident in you. How did you feel prepared to go and, you know, talk to Mike Martin, talk to the staff at Brown and feel like you were ready to get this job and come home to Providence? Did you, you know, some guys have binders, some guys have PowerPoints, like kind of, can you walk us through that process of getting this particular job? 
Definitely. Uh, I think at Brown, Mike, and you're, you're spot on. You know, I didn't have to interview at, at, at Maine. I think at Brown, you know, meeting with Mike, he had me watch film. Uh, he had me scout, you know, watch three games, kind of give me a, you know, a, a brief scout of the team. And it was funny. We played against Brown when we were at Maine our second year. So I kind of had a scout already. And uh, so that was and it's funny. I interviewed for I interviewed twice now with Brown. I interviewed the first year and John Lenahan got the job and then I came back around. So the second time around, I was a little more prepared than the first time. My biggest adjustment was with administration. I had to meet with, you know, uh, assistant ADs and uh, things like compliance director. So that was new for me, kind of speaking to the people in administration. Talking to Mike about basketball stuff, I felt very comfortable. Also, knowing him, having a relationship before, uh, I felt comfortable with that. But my biggest adjustment was meeting with administration. Yeah, and if the path from for John Linehan is anything like yours is going to be, that's pretty good, right? We just saw yesterday, he goes from Brown to Hartford, Fairfield for like a week and a half, and then just, you know, lands in uh, – Athens, Georgia. So if that if that's the way it's going to go, man, it's great to be an assistant at Brown, right? NCAA steals leader, man. Look, look what that gets you, huh? <laughs> no, a guy that we know pretty well from uh, from our time at Temple. But uh, no, I appreciate that. And like I said, I, I think one of the hardest things for assistants, especially young guys trying to go from you know different levels, is not necessarily understanding that even if your reputation is very good, it's it's hard to walk in the door and feel like you're the favorite for a job. Like you do have to work for it and you do have to interview. Yes, connections matter and network matters. But I think that's when one of the biggest things for us to understand is that like you're going to walk in the door and you're going to sit down with a coach. And once the, the lights go on in there, you can't hide. Like you can't say like, oh, I've gotten all these players. If that's not what they're looking at, then it doesn't get you a job, I guess. And that's why I was curious because like I said, you know, as a 29-year-old, I don't know how many times you'd been through that type of experience because it, as you get older, I think that happens more and more often as you try to advance in your career. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you get more comfortable. Like you, like the second time around, I felt more comfortable speaking to, you know, people with, with shirts and ties on, you know, more or less to say. So uh, it, with Mike, like I said, it was talking basketball. I can talk that all day, you know, and, and he's really, really sharp and sees the game in a different way. So it was really cool to, kind of sit down with him and go over a brief scout, you know, but uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll take it to coach speak. Smalls has the first one. This is from your uh, former coach and boss, Bob Walsh. Wherever you are, you've just got to recruit good enough players to win with the structure of recruiting forces you to get your work done a lot earlier. You've got to be a step ahead. And, uh, you know, obviously Tyler mentioned, this is, you know, the definition of my guy, your guy, how have you become better as both an evaluator and a recruiter over the first five years of your career? Uh, well, well, at Maine, I think it was, you could find the good in just about, like I said, like Division Two borderline kids, you know? So my eye had to change in recruiting. And I laugh, but it was September 10th, I'm on the road and I'm sending I'm sending out text uh, evaluations and I'm like, that kid's a stud. I'm at Brown now and I'm like, that kid's a stud. And now I watch him nine months later and I'm like, eh, I'm not sure that kid's a stud. So you know, my eye really had to change. And like I said, being the 10th best league in the country, you got to find, you know, you're going after high major kids. You know, if you want to be, you know, Harvard's got four top 100 kids in this league. So if you want to be close to being good, you got to get mid-major plus level kids. So, um, I think I've got better with identifying and, and trying to see who would fit us better. You know, more or less you see a kid, hey, I like that kid. He's good. He can dribble. He can shoot. He can dunk. 
you know, but does he fit what we're trying to do? So I think I've got better in that that phase of realizing who fits our style, our program. Because I tell you, culture culture matters. Culture is a big thing. You know, that kid could be talented, but, you know, could just not fit your culture, which could weigh you guys down. So I think uh, identifying talent that can help you win at a high level and then realizing what fits your culture uh, best. How have you found your voice as a recruiter? Smalls and I have talked about this in the past where like you're a young assistant and you see a kid and you really, really like him and you kind of speak up in a meeting and it gets brushed aside. And, you know, maybe in year one, you kind of let it go. But by year five, you're like, no, 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 no. Like, I, I believe in this kid. Like, I'm going to go to bat for him. Have you have you experienced that over the last couple of years? Like really kind of finding your voice and being like, no, this is the type of kid we need. For sure. For sure. And I, I think it's I, I think I always there's a line saying that everything has to hit your boss's desk. So. You know, if you can kind of do your groundwork early and, you know, you may believe in a kid, but the more you know about that kid, the more you can sell your coach on. So um, if you really like a kid, I'd say dive in as much as possible, find out as much as possible before you bring it to your boss, um, especially if he's already had an issue with maybe you bringing it to the table. I'd say wait a couple more weeks, um, wait, wait two weeks and, you know, touch base with three or four more people around the kid that you know, where you've got more concrete information that may help your boss, uh, you know, you know, move that way on that kid. So I, I've definitely ran into issues uh, where, you know, Walsh didn't like a kid and I had to wait. I had to sit on it and bring him more film, uh, cut up more tape on him, watch more. So you kind of, like I said, know more about the kid and then you know more of how he would fit your style. So I think that helps. I actually, real quick before we jump to the next quote, you're recruiting back when you were in high school, have you been able to draw on that? Like you said, like you didn't necessarily want to go D3, ended up being a great decision for you. Were you able to kind of tell guys like maybe somebody didn't want to go to the America East or they thought they had a better offer than the Ivy and and you're able to kind of say like, hey, I took this chance at a a school that I thought was a, it was, it ended up being a perfect fit for me. Have you been able to kind of draw on how you were recruited in, in as now your role as the recruiter? Yeah, definitely. And I think it was more of, you know, I think the difference with, with Brown and Maine, it was, you know, we really don't have to sell. At Maine, you had to sell your boss, too. You know, at Brown, it kind of sells itself. So I was selling kids on to come play for Coach Walsh um, at the University of Maine, where less it's like, hey, come to Brown University and come play for Mike Martin. So uh, I think selling, selling kids on playing for Walsh definitely was something that I found myself doing a ton. And, you know, Maine, like you said, not being as – a big time school, you know, maybe similar to Rhode Island College, but uh, yeah, definitely selling myself, you know, selling Coach Walsh a lot. It's actually interesting, just just like you said, like Rick is such a good program, and like people have been successful there at, at a lot of different levels, and obviously being able to go from Rick to a Division One program, we don't see a lot of like D three to D one head coaches. It, it just doesn't happen all that often, and and I am wondering, like I said, like you're recruiting like the top of division three and then in the America East, like you're just trying to compete and like stay above water. Did you guys have to cycle through like, I don't know, 500 names every recruiting period? Like, is that how big your list was at, at, at Maine? Our list is bigger at Brown than it was. Is it really? Really? And I, and I think, you know, as, as you know, year three, year four, I think our list got bigger at Maine. Like I said, early on the first year, First year and second year, we were kind of recruiting more the north northeast and doing JUCO, and then we kind of went out and kind of did wherever uh, our third and fourth year. So, but uh, you know, we we brought in five JUCO kids: South Carolina, Texas, North Carolina. So I think it was a little different uh, as we got on in our career. 
But yes, the first two years we did a lot of, you know, recruiting locally. So it wasn't as much names, wasn't as many names. It's actually interesting when we were sitting with your guy, Tommy Barrett in Minneapolis this year, he, he was saying like, you know, at Maine, really talent wasn't necessarily the biggest issue. Like when, when everything kind of like went to shit, everybody kind of transferred and guys went to high major schools, mid-major schools. Like you had a lot of very good players there. What, what do you think was, you know, if you had to point to one or two things you think that just didn't work out or you wish you got another shot at over the last four years, what do you think you would look to? Uh, I would say this. I would recruit the same kids that we recruited, recruited already. I think you have to get that talent in order to be successful in that league. Uh, I would probably recruit older, um, like we did our third and fourth year, getting kids that can't leave, you know, or, you know, maybe don't want to transfer because it can hurt them, you know, and going down a level. But, uh, you know, I still take Isaac Van. I still take Devine Eke. I still take Kevin Little, you know. And, and, again, I think it's more or less finding now, also finding that kid that fits Maine. You know, maybe those kids didn't fit Maine more or less, but I still want that Isaac Van talent. Uh, but just finding someone that fits more the University of Maine. And I, I think Coach Walsh has been open about that. I know he's definitely blogged about it. Like, you can get talent anywhere. Like, that's not always the issue. So when people say, like, oh, we can't recruit, like, you're probably not working hard enough or you're probably not evaluating right. So I feel like he's been very open about that, that the talent level was not the problem over the last couple of years. And, you know, for lack of a better word, like, or lack of a better phrase, I don't know, the stuff that surrounds certain programs sometimes just you catch a bad break. And that's why I was curious, and this kind of goes hand in hand with my next quote, you know, how do you evaluate yourself, Antone? Like how, after each year, do you evaluate and say, this is what I can do better. This is what I did poorly this year. This is what needs to be improved. This is what I did great. Like, how does that work for you on a year to year basis? I think it's just identifying, you know, your guys, you know, at each program, you have specific guys that you work with. And I think how they progress tells a lot about, you know, your what, how, how well you've done, you know, in your job. So I'd say, you know, identifying those guys and, and realizing what they need to work on. And then, you know, I think that, that helps me. Hey, this is what I said he need to work on. Did we, did we complete that this year? You know, and I think that would help me. Hey, I got to get better with focusing more on this with this kid, focusing, be, being more in tune every day on this. So I definitely uh, am a self-evaluator. I ask a lot of questions. You know, after workouts, if my boss is watching, I say, I may say, hey, how'd you like that? What can I do better? Um, I'm always curious of how I can help myself grow. So I think definitely sitting down and, and self-evaluating is a big, is a big uh, impact for you. Uh, if you could talk just to talk about, I shouldn't say stuff like that. I butchered your name and now I'm doing crappy journalism. But curious, you worked with a lot of guys who are very much into professional develop, professional, professional development. What are, what are two to three things that you, you do in the offseason to really help with your professional development? Uh, I watch a lot of film on Synergy. Uh, and I watch a lot of NBA stuff. You know, Zach's, you know, really big on showing guys NBA film, you know, during workouts or even college film where, you know, maybe it may be Cassius Winston coming off a ball screen and, you know, maybe our point guard can relate to this now. And instead of me showing me doing it, here's how Cassius Winston did it. Here's how Dame Lillard did it. So uh, watching a lot of film on synergy and uh, then just kind of reaching out to other people as, as much as possible to, you know, hey, how did you guys guard this ball screen this year? 
How, uh, what did you do during this workout? If you had a kid that couldn't shoot this year, how did you attack that? Um, just trying to find different ways to, to help myself and also to help our program grow. Last question before we go to uh, City Review. You, you come off as somebody with a tremendous amount of self-confidence. Were you always like that when you entered the profession? I mean, I mean or is this something that, that has grown or, or you're just very comfortable in saying, like, I just want to be the best I can be and I want our players to be the best they can be so it doesn't really matter? You know, I'm just curious because some guys don't have a level of self-confidence. Like, I mean, you're 29. That's a young age for an assistant who's been around the block a while. Did you have to work to find some of that self-confidence? Uh, definitely, man. I, I think just being, you know, how I was brought up and, you know, how I was raised, uh, you know, I think that that has a lot to do with, you know, who I am today and, you know, the tough love that I received and things like that. And just the people around me also instilling confidence in me. So I think the people that you that you're around, you know, you got to have people that believe in you. So, you know, that way you can you know believe in yourself. So and uh, yeah, confidence is something that I think you have to have. You have to have a presence, you know, once you walk in a room you know, being the point guard on the floor in the locker room, I always had to have a presence. So uh, I've had to have guys that wanted to follow me and no one wants to follow me that's not confident. So I think it's something that translated uh, pretty easily. And I think it started with, you know, how I was raised. Well, it's, it's interesting that you said that because you, you mentioned like when you're on the floor scouting as a young guy, like if you stutter, or you mess up or maybe you run something in the wrong direction, like you're reading your sheet guys notice that but I also think it's important to realize that it's it's not the end of the world if it happens every single time you have a scout over and over and over again maybe guys won't respect you but a lot of times players are just like whatever he's moving fast like they recognize the pressure you're under as well and I think like getting through that first maybe oh I screwed this up like let me flip this player whatever that that probably really helps recognizing that it's not the end of the world and that guys don't automatically think you're a joke just because you made a mistake one time right right and it's funny I was like quick story I I was in a film session and we were, it kept popping up. Number one, you know, Devontae Miller, number 30, you know, Devontae Short. So whatever, you know, whatever his name was. And I kept saying, no, four times in a row, I said number one. And finally, you know, Coach Walsh was like, is everybody number one? You know, and then like to your point, just I, I was uncomfortable giving the scout at the time, being in the room. And I think for me, it was knowing that I had three other coaches that had more experience than me in the room that, you know, that was my biggest adjustment, being on the floor. Now, playing, I was probably one of the more experienced guys on the floor telling those other guys what to do, and no one could interject at the time. Now, being, you know, being a coach, not being probably the smartest guy in the room, your head coach is probably the smartest guy, <laughs> you know, and he can interject. That was, you know, listening to yourself speak. So that, uh, I think that was an adjustment. That's awesome. Well, um, I've got high expectations for our next segment. And, um, you know, you put the pressure on yourself, which I love uh, <laughs> before the interview, but I've, I've had the chance to spend a little time in, in the area, you know, recruiting at St. Andrew's school. There was always a diner, uh, very close and I like the town, but you're gonna, you're gonna take us into Providence, Rhode Island. You're going to give us three restaurants, two bars or night spots that we should hang out at and one activity to do. You, go ahead. Three bars. Uh, did I, did you say three, three, restaurants? three restaurants, two bars or night spots, and one activity. Yeah, I wanted more bars than restaurants. Oh, you can do a bar <laughs> restaurant. There's always food at restaurants. You can do seven bars. I don't – it's whatever um, you want. <laughs> one bar – I'll start off with one bar I really like is Black Sheep right now. Uh, not in order, but it's a, it's, a, it's 
downtown Providence. It's got really good wings, and uh, it's a real cool spot. Got a bunch of TVs, a uh, good spot to watch games. It's got some really uh, cool bartenders. I got to ask about your wing game. Uh, are you like a garlic, like pepper, like some obscure flavor? Or are you just like a classic hot wing guy? You know what? I was just saying to my girl the other day, like I'm off the hot wing wave right now. I'm, okay. Uh, I'm more lemon pepper. You know. Oh, no. that, that is a good flavor. I'll agree. I'll agree. Oh, <laughs> uh, let me see. My second, my second bar uh, would have to be Vibe Lounge right now. That's a little close to my house. Uh, as I'm getting older now, I'm I'm scaling back on the scene. So uh, Vibe Lounge is, is a nice spot. A uh, little, you know, not as upscale, but it's a smooth spot, about 25 to 35 years old. It's a good spot there. It, it's funny you mentioned that because, like, I was thinking, and Smalls and I were talking about after the Final Four, like, we end up at the pumps party on Thursday night, and it's like a club. Like, there's strobe lights everywhere. And then the next morning I woke up, I was like, yo, I, I can't do that, but, like, one night a year anymore. I need a spot where there's, like, seating. I don't have to fight people to get to the bar. I don't have to scream and yell if I want to have a conversation. It's like, what happened to me? You know, 22 years old, I was in it. I was fist pumping. And now you go to, you go to one thing, like, at the, at, at, in Minneapolis, and you start questioning, like, am I not cool anymore? Like, what happened to me? You were never cool. I'll That's answer fair. that. That's I'll That's answer fair. that. That was my first time going, too, and that was, that was ridiculous. I mean, it's just, it's literally, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, we, we've done the Vegas, like, nightclub scene, Smalls and I together, and I think the pump party is, like, up there with those famous clubs that everybody hears about. Like, people probably think we're overselling it a little bit. Like, it's, it's a zoo in there. It's unbelievable. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to give you now three, three restaurants. Yay. Siena, uh, which is an Italian place. That I've actually just started going to uh, since I've worked at Brown, do a lot of recruit visits there to upscale Italian spot on Federal Hill. Big time, big time food. Uh, the second spot I, I'm going to dive into now, kind of, you know, some quick spots. I say Flames Restaurant. It's off of Eddie Street. It's a Jamaican uh, fast style restaurant. Kind of food's already out hot. Um, so that's one of my one of my big time spots. And the third spot. I'm a sushi guy, so I'd say Mount Fuji, uh, another spot on Federal uh, on Federal Hill. It's a hibachi place, and it's got a, a, a really good amount of uh, sushi. I'm a sushi shrimp tempura guy, so uh, I'd have to say those three spots right there. That's awesome. That's awesome. What, what, what was the other? What, what else? One activity that we've got to do in Providence. We're just coming in for a weekend. We've got to we've got to do an activity in Providence, Rhode Island. What are we doing? One activity in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, well, one, two cool things they have right now are the jump bikes and they have the the, uh, the motorized scooters. So oh, you go on your like Charlotte. Yeah. 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 And I think that's like a good sightseeing spot. Everything in Providence is close. So you can literally get from Providence to Cranston in 20 minutes on a scooter. So you can get to different spots. So I'd say, I'd say jumping on the scooters and doing some sightseeing, getting downtown. Uh, also, if you have some time, the water fire, uh, getting on the boats during the water fire and going through the kind of the river and seeing that, seeing the, the mall and all the buildings that we have downtown. I'd say those are, those are some things that I do. Yeah, summers in Rhode Island are apparently electric. I got to ask you about the scooter situation. I mean, there's, you know, Charlotte had a little trouble. What's the scooter situation like in Rhode Island? Are people just dropping those things wherever, just <laughs> flying around? You know, you may get clipped one day. What, what's the scooter situation really like? You literally can leave them anywhere in Providence. 
Um, Are people just like shooting down hills and stuff? Oh yeah, ten minutes of just dropping in the grass, and <laughs> it's, uh, it's all over Brown's campus. And then there's the workers, you know, from the company. They come and they pick them up and they put them back on the truck and they bring them where they're supposed to be. But dudes just leave them anywhere, <laughs> literally. So it, it's they're crazy in Nashville now too. Like everybody rides them, and people get like people get like sauced up and ride them as fast as they can on the sidewalks. You're not supposed to be able to do that, like. I, I swear, like, I don't have any idea if there's been any, like, serious accidents, but there's got to be something on Bovada, like, first, like, serious scooter injury that's going to happen because I always they, – they're just flying by you. People – nobody's wearing a helmet. It's it's a wild little atmosphere down here now. Oh, absolutely. It's the, it's the same exact way. You see them everywhere, all on the side of the road. And, and anywhere you drive, every corner you drive, you see a jump bike or you see a scooter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's roll over to 10 touches. 30-second uh, rapid-fire question and answer. I got the first five. Who is the funniest person you've ever worked with or coached? Uh, worked with, not even close, Zach Bovet. I mean, not even close. Lived with him. Uh, it doesn't even compare. He's the funniest guy uh, that I've worked with. Very, very, like, dry sense of humor, too. Like, just not, not worried about who he's going to piss off with what he says. Like, I, I appreciate that about Zach. We had a blast when he was on the podcast. Like, very funny. Uh, group chat funny like you know in person funny he's hilarious uh what's the worst travel story you've had as a basketball coach toughest trip maybe you've been on uh well i mean you always had a tough one but we lost uh at stony brook on a saturday night uh had to take the ferry you know uh to take the ferry back over um then drove it was snowing so in connecticut we're driving back up to maine uh it's also now it's about an eight hour bus ride eight to ten hour bus ride and uh so we're driving back up. It's snowing. We had to stop, um, you know, and ice the windows or defrost the windows. Our, our bus driver had to get off and continue to defrost the windows probably about every five miles. Um, we didn't get back to Maine. So we lost game at seven, got on the bus by 10, didn't get back to the University of Maine to 7 a.m. We went straight to the breakfast spot and uh, one of the coaches there actually was having a beer at about 7 a.m. So. <laughs> That was, that was the worst trip. <laughs> Something to take the edge off. Uh, now that it's the off season, what are, what have you been binge watching on TV? What TV shows are you into? Uh the All American. That's I've been watching. That. Oh, oh, this is big. This is big. This is our group chat. <laughs> I, uh, I I watched it early, so I caught it before it was on CW. I got it before it got to Netflix, so I watched it all. But uh, I definitely waited every weekend, and I didn't miss a uh, I didn't miss an episode. So small. I texted Smalls like, "What's the show on Netflix? Is it like a Netflix original?" And uh, it's about a kid who he's in California. It's actually based on a guy named Spencer Pacinger, who I guess did actually play in the NFL. But he is like, he, I don't even remember what Crenshaw. He goes to school and then he goes to like Beverly Academy, which is Beverly Hills. And I told Smalls that it's like a must watch. The music is great. Obviously, good looking girls, like high school drama, and then. The, the, the football games are amazing. Like every single game is like a Hail Mary to win the game or like a fumble at the one yard line. It's awesome. It got picked up for season two. Right. Typical, typical movie, but I, uh, I enjoy it. It was a good, it was a good it was, show. It's great. The plot uh, point, it's just like a different plot point. It's awesome. There's just so much crazy stuff that's going on. It's the suspension <laughs> of disbelief that you give it to. And that's what opens up your mind. The all American to me is just incredible. Great, We're excited great show. about season two. Might have a watch party. Don't know. Uh, who's been the toughest player that you've had to game plan against? Uh, Jason Tatum. We played Duke. I believe it was our last year, third year. Uh, we played Jason. We played Duke 
and I uh, wasn't sure if it was my scout, wasn't sure if he was going to play. He was injured. That was his first game back. So I'd say him and uh, two other guys I'd give you is Jarius Lyles, who was at UNBC, and uh, Matt Morgan, who was at Cornell, who led the league uh, in scoring four years in a row. So those, uh, those three. Yeah, the, the Jason Tatum at Duke, I'm sure that that line of Bovada was like, you know, minus 35, and then Jason Tatum ends up playing, because you're playing in their, in their building to begin with. Matt, Matt, Matt Morgan, uh, got to be like a fringe NBA prospect, right? I mean, he's a big time scorer. He's on some boards at like 56, 57. So yeah, I mean, he can really score. Were you guys close with Duke at halftime? I feel like I remember this sitting in the Philly U cafeteria watching that game and being like, this game's kind of close at halftime, but I can't recall if it was that year or another year. We, we were actually, we had a kid who, uh, actually like 15 and a half, Ilka Ur, who plays, uh, overseas in Turkey right now. He, uh, he had a really good half. Actually, Jason Tatum was guarding him. He had 15. They hit a buzzer beater right at the half. He does. And uh, they went up about 8, maybe 8, 11 or something like that. But we were right there, right before that buzzer beater. Now, you, uh, you're obviously from Providence. Did you grow up a Celtics fan? Uh, I'm, I really don't have a favorite team. I, I, I root for them, but uh, I'm a more of a players guy. So I like Jason Kidd, Chris Paul, and then now LeBron James. Yeah, point guards, passers. There we go. Uh, what would you do if you weren't coaching? I'd be working with kids in the community. Uh, my mom's got a, a daycare out of the home. She's had it for the last 15 years. So I grew up around kids. And uh, so I'd be working with kids in the community, maybe at a rec center, something like that. Uh, but definitely being involved in Providence. What would you change about college basketball? You know, I was stumped on this one. But uh, I'd have to say, I'd have to say the recruiting. Uh, kind of in what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. You know, uh, there's just so many rules and, you know, dead periods and things like that. So I'd say just, um, and being specific, I, I'm, I'm going to be short on that, but I'd say recruiting, just kind of reshaping that more to help the kids and to kind of not, you know, not, we're, they're worried about so many infractions on us. So I'd say to kind of limit the, limit the rules so that there's not so many infractions. We, we actually talked about that last week with Bruce Hamburger, where it's now become so much more difficult to, to really get a good evaluation on kids and for kids to get out and get seen as much as they need to do because they just keep taking away days and changing the calendar and making it so for guys like you who need to see a lot of kids, like you just don't have as many opportunities as you used to, especially because they just act like during the season that like you can just go to a high school game all the time. And, and yeah, you can go to a lot of them, but it's not something you're able to do five days a week. So you're like in season, it's, like, <laughs> it's just tough. It's tough. Right. You're leaving your team, you're leaving your kids. So to go recruit, like the summertime was a good time to build and be able to see kids without hurting your team as well. So um, yeah, I definitely think just kind of changing the rules there, tightening up. Do you have a pregame routine or any superstitions? Uh, as a player, I did as a coach, uh, no, kind of eat, shower, shave. Um, those are my three things. Come back home, relax. But, uh, nah, not nah, as a player, I used to listen to, to two songs. So, um, that was all I listened to. And so those are my, those not really. <laughs> what, what, what were the two songs? Uh, I listened to Run This Town by Jay-Z. Yes. Um, and then I used to listen to the Little Wayne's uh, "No Ceilings." Um, that was another one. Right there. His, uh, it was called Sports Center, so the, the song was Sports Center. So you you awesome. listen to those on repeat the entire warm up? On repeat the entire. I mean, that's, awesome. that's facts. Yeah, like 
<laughs> on repeat. It's funny, Coach Walsh to this day, you know, knows those songs by heart because of that. I'm a big, re- I'm big on repeat guy too. I just like have to listen to a song just back and forth, keep going, just on a loop. But uh, do you have hidden talent or any secret talents we don't know about? Big time cook, fellas. Big time. Oh, really? Ooh. Now, now, what's the go-to dish? Yeah, so you're a sushi guy, but it might be a different go-to dish that you got. Baked, baked potatoes, some green beans. Uh, but I, I mean, I can. I, I like to say I can do a lot, man. Shepherd's pie, Chinese chicken. Uh, I can make you know a little African dish, some spinach and and rice. You know, with mm-hmm. some you know good food. Uh, I can just Chinese. I can do just about anything you need, fellas. Just I'm, I'm a big chopped uh, and like you know Bob beat Bob. Basically, the whole cooking channels I, I watch and I try to take things and then. You know, I'll get the bold idea, you know, a couple months after, you know, maybe I'll try it. Then I'll almost burn the house down. But <laughs> sounds like that's going to be uh, another activity we're going to do. We're just going to have you cook for us. It's going to be great. <laughs> Best player that came out of Rhode Island, not not named you. Best player to come out of Rhode Island. I got three for you. Yes. Uh, I got TJ Sorrentine, who I work with, um, who's probably one of the most decorated high school players uh, ever in Rhode Island. Um, and college as well. So Ricky Lito, who I grew yep, up yep. Uh, in the housing projects with, grew up with okay. him since I was about 11 years old. And, uh, you know, he was, he's, I got a couple years on him. So he was about eight, nine years old and didn't see it at the time, but became a big time player. And then the last guy I played with since I was 11 to about 16, I went to high school with, played 80 with, is Rakim Sanders. And I think, uh, I, I'd say he's probably the, the overall, I'd give it to him. Uh, I give it to Rakim with just his his overseas uh, resume um, now. Ricky was one of the best just in terms of like pure scores I've ever seen at the AAU and like high school level. And I know there was some other stuff and I coached against him when he was in the he was in the D League when I was coaching the D League. But just in terms of like pure score at like 16 years old, like really impressed. I remember being like, there's a chance that he could be the best player. Like he could be one of the best scores in the NBA in a couple of years if everything breaks right. And, you know, other shit went on. But. Man, he could really score it in high school. It was really impressive. He was a big-time scorer, man, growing up. And I tell you, his brother, who's my age, was uh, that's where he gets it from. You know, he was uh, around the neighborhood. He was a big-time scorer in the city, and, you know, he definitely got it from him. Two podcast guests for us. Uh, two, and I, I don't know. I, I, one of them is my guy at Putnam Science Academy, Josh Scraber. Um, he's Coach Hamadou Diallo. He deals with a lot of AAU guys, had big-time players. Sends guys everywhere. I think he's well-connected uh, in the business, and I've known him since I was about 12 years old. I think he'd be a great a great guy on the podcast. And then uh, there's a female assistant that I worked with at Maine who just uh, went from LMU to Kansas University, Jasmine Player. She played at Baylor with Brittany Griner, um, went to Final Four, played in the, uh, played in the NBA, uh, WNBA, played overseas as well, averaged like 34 overseas one year she's uh really really big she's she's uh big on social media she's a big time big time lady and i think she'd be another great person on the podcast good yeah good suggestions out out of the box stuff i I appreciate that we do need to do a better job on the women's side because like one of the things this has taught us is there's just great coaches at all levels like some guys are you know just because you're not famous or just because you're not doing it you know high major division one men's side doesn't mean that like you're not a tremendous phenomenal basketball coach and that's we, we got to do a better job of that for sure 
Um, last segment, same two questions to every guest. We call these parting shots. I got the first one. What's the best advice you've ever been given? Uh, real simple. You control your own destiny. That's from Jamie Benton, who uh, is the J- Johnson & Wales head coach, Division Three in Rhode Island. And uh, I went to St. Andrews for two years. Um, and I actually got, I got kicked out of St. Andrews. Um, you know, I was rough around the edges growing up. And I remember he picked me up at about nine o'clock from St. Andrews after a game and we pull up. My house is only 20 minutes away. I get to my house and I'm sitting there to about 1.15 in the morning, uh, just me and him outside my house. And he, you know, instilled some good stuff in me, you know, gave me a lot of good advice. And uh, that was the thing that stuck with me in that five-hour conversation was you control your own destiny. That's awesome. Face-to-face with your 22-year-old self, what are you telling him? Ha-ha. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, a lot of stuff. But, you know, the biggest thing is you, you kind of want to have it all. You, you want to be 22. You want to have your college degree. You want to have your career and kind of just be patient, man. None of that stuff is going to be ready at the time, you know. Uh, you know, you're going to go through some major bumps in the road, but if you can withstand all that and, you know, when the smoke clears, you know, you're going to see a dream in front of you and you're going to be living it every single day. So uh, just continue to, to stay the course, stay positive, uh, live a balanced life, you know, uh, be loyal, be honest, you know, respect others. And, and you know, y- your dream is going to be right there in front of you. Yeah. I think in this business, patience is, ultimately one of the biggest things that guys need to take away from or, or need to like keep in mind because you see guys that have success at a young age and you you know people get jealous you see guys that don't and you're kind of like what's wrong with that guy and it, it, you know you never really know everybody's situation so in my opinion like that's great advice because just like patience is really really important because it's hard man everything's on social media now you know and like you, it, you just kind of live in the public eye and so that that's good advice I, I really feel that way so many emotions you can be up that up one day down the next two like so i think you just got to be patient and you know stay the course well uh we appreciate you taking the time this morning follow antone on twitter at coach underscore tone one uh he has you control your own destiny in his bio so you can take a look at that uh but we do appreciate you coming on and, and kind of sharing some time with us this morning like i said it is mother's day and uh you know, I know you guys are kind of at a lull right now. You can't really go out and recruit, I guess, until June, which is the new high school events. But, uh, you know, enjoy some time off. Enjoy some time with your girlfriend. Enjoy the time with the players. And uh, we will talk soon. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it, Chris. Thank you, Tyler, man. Appreciate you guys having me. Uh, it was awesome.